This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Now, Irenaeus had been a disciple of, or at least had heard, Polycarp preach. He'd been a disciple of Polycarp. And Polycarp, if you remember, was a disciple of the Apostle John. This will play an important role here in a few minutes. And it's pretty clear that Irenaeus looked to Polycarp as his ideal bishop, the man he most wanted to be like when he grew up. Well, after the persecutions in, uh, in France, in Gaul, Irenaeus becomes the new bishop of Lyon, L-Y-O-N, in France, the most important city in Gaul or France. So he has a very, very important person, important city. And he is generally considered, along with Tertullian, to be one of the most important theologians of the late 2nd, early 3rd century. He helps define the orthodox tradition, the orthodox view. Now, there are two of his writings that uh, have come to us down from... 1700 years or so. The two works are first, Against Heresies, which is probably the more famous, and it was written to combat Gnosticism. In fact, we will see throughout Irenaeus' theology that he is defining Orthodox Christianity in opposition to Gnosticism. And the other work, and this I gave you an abbreviated title, the full title of the second work is The Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching. The Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching. This work is a, uh, a short handbook uh, written against heresies. Now, Irenaeus is important for generally two reasons. And I've sort of alluded to these already. He's important because he tried to stabilize Christianity as opposed to the threats from the outside. Give it some internal coherence. And we'll see as he talks about the bishop in a little bit how he did this. And he's trying to stabilize Christianity in the face of a torrent of persecution. Uh, this man forged his beliefs in fire, in effect. And in the course of trying to identify and stabilize Christianity in the face of persecution, he also develops his theology somewhat. Now, for me, the idea of stability and theology go hand in hand. Uh, I think that's true it was true then and it's true now. 
Do you mind if I get on my hobby horse for a minute? Give you a break anyway. <laughs> Just it's theological contribution. The first one was stabilizing Christianity in the face of persecution, and secondly, development of theology. Uh, just it's just this that uh, I think that evangelicals have been inclined to uh, <clears throat> marginalize theology. We uh, we somehow want to focus on on what's practical, what works, as opposed. To truth, and I just would want to encourage those of you who are missionaries and and want, are going to become missionaries and pastors. Please don't minimize the importance of theology. When I say theology, I'm not talking about working out elaborate systems and where you have everything sort of just completely worked out. But I'm talking about some basic ideas of who God is and the importance of, of thinking about who God is. I was uh, at a missionary uh, missions conference uh, this past weekend and I asked uh, this fellow who was uh, uh, ministering in the Ukraine, uh, a Ukrainian, and I asked him, uh, uh, you know, what, what do you teach these these uh pastors in the Ukraine and you start these churches and you say, well, we teach them how to tithe. And uh, I just, that, that really hit me rather hard. Uh, you know, tithing, okay. But that's not first on my list in terms of establishing a church. You know, what we need, whether 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 it's a, you're pastoring a church or whether it's you know you're a missionary, the importance of a, of solid theology is absolutely crucial to the stability of any church. Whether it's a church you plant in the Ukraine or a church you plant in Orlando, and I, I encourage you uh, to work at your theology and in, in fact encourage your people. Uh, to think through what it is they believe. I have, I have a, a deep conviction. And that conviction is this, is that theology, that is, what we understand about God and about Christ and about man, radically changes the way you live life. And so theology is not something that's abstract, somehow a great distance from the living of life. But theology makes a difference in the way you live your life. And so I, with all my heart, I encourage pastors, missionaries, and people who sit in the pews uh, to think through your theology. Make it biblical. Um, and make sure you encourage others. That's enough of my, my speech. Okay. Back to Irenaeus. That was just a quick run-through of his life, and we'll pick up bits and pieces of his life as we go along. I want to look more now at his theology and the idea of first apostolic succession. In his treatise against heresy, which had been provoked 
by a particular Gnostic movement in Gaul, uh, one led by a fellow by the name of Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S. And apparently, these Gnostics who followed Marcus had actually lured some people away from Irenaeus's church in Lyon. And so this book, Against Heresies, is written to combat this, this Gnosticism, particularly the Gnosticism as espoused by this group called Marcus, uh, headed by Marcus. He divides this treatise into five major chapters. They call them books back then. So the first chapter, the first book in this treatise, he is very useful to us because he articulates very clearly the beliefs of the Gnostics first. He expands, gives a detailed exposition of the basic beliefs of Gnosticism. In the second chapter, or the second book, he does what I think we've already seen some of the early church fathers do, is he appeals to reason, and he shows how Christianity is reasonable and the other guys are not. They are irrational. They're inconsistent. And so he puts it upon himself to expose some of the inconsistencies and what he might consider irrationalities of the Gnostic system, their absurdities. So the second chapter, second book, takes a focus on reason and rationality. And then he gets biblical. Book three, he focuses on what the apostles taught in his refutation of Gnosticism. So he goes from reason in book two to the apostolic teaching in book three. And then in book four, he looks at the writings of Christ, the sayings of Christ, I should say. Christ didn't write anything as far as we know. The sayings of Jesus, looking to the Gospels. And finally in book five, he gets into eschatology and the idea of a millennial kingdom. Bear in mind that he is writing his book against heresies and he particularly has in mind the Gnostics. Now here's the kicker. The Gnostics thought of themselves as Christians and they claimed to represent true Christian apostolic doctrine. You see, they had the the deeper knowledge, the gnosis of the apostles. For example, Marcion claimed to represent the teaching of Paul. Basilides was another, and you don't need to, I've mentioned that name once before, but he was a Gnostic, and he claimed to represent the teaching of Peter. So here we are. You have these Gnostics and they say, I am teaching what Peter and Paul taught. With this claim to a direct link to the apostles went this notion of the Gnostics that they had this deeper gnosis. Now, this I think is a very contemporary problem. Let's suppose that everywhere you turn, people are twisting the Bible and making it say things 
that you think are not right. And you think that in fact there are groups of people who are leading other people astray from the truth. What do you do? What's that? Shoot them. <laughs> Besides shooting them. Now, isn't it true? I mean, that's where the truth is. The truth is found there. <laughs> I remember when I was a high school student uh, and in early college, I did construction work in, in, the, su in the summers. And uh, I had met a number of fellows who were black Muslims. And we would get together at lunch and we'd take our Bibles. And he would, this fellow was a, was a very cordial and friendly guy. And particularly friendly in view of the fact that he believed all white people were devils. Uh, but what we would do is we would go to the scriptures and I would, I would try to talk to him about the scriptures and he would try to tell me what the Bible said. Have any of you had a knock on your door? A Jehovah's Witness, someone comes to you and says, this is what the Bible says. David Koresh in the Branch Davidians in Texas. I'm, I'm sorry about that. You know, I've seen those videotapes, this guy waving his Bible all over the place. And he was telling people, this is what the Bible teaches. What do you do? You're in the early church, second, third century. Let's say you have a pretty good idea of what the canon is. What do you do? When other people are saying, this is what the Bible teaches. And I represent the, the teaching of Peter, and I represent the, the teaching of Paul. What do you do? Any ideas? I remember... I don't know how many times it's happened to me. Sometimes if I, if I meet someone, I'm talking to them, and they're, and they're trying to figure out who I am and what I mean by Christianity. One of the things I often have done is I will identify myself as one who belongs to historic Christianity. I believe, by and large, the same things that Augustine taught that uh, Athanasius taught, Gregory of Remini, Luther, Calvin, Peter Martyr, the Puritans. So I will point to a line of people that I belong... I, there's a groove, and I, and I think I've identified historic Christianity. And I can say that you know, I go back, the things I believe are not somehow new things, but they're, they're old and they go back to the early days. <laughs> you want to finish that story? No, unfortunately I didn't. Uh, we main, maintained good friendship. Uh, I went off to college uh, and he went off to wherever he went. But we, that whole summer we, we met and we talked a great deal. Um, he was, he was actually, this, this fellow was, was an older gentleman. Uh, he was not, interestingly enough, was not a young man. He was an older man. And uh, inter interestingly enough, I used to ask him, I would say, 
are you telling me that I am a devil? And you know what was interesting? Is he said, no, I'm not saying you are. Because he and I got along really well. Uh, you know, I didn't use bad language like most of the other guys did. And, uh, you know, I was willing to help anytime I could. And uh, I had I tried to, to be a, a good witness with my, my life and my, my character. And um, I, I, was, I was always intrigued that when I asked him that question point blank, is he couldn't come out and say, yes, I believe you're a devil. He, he just thought, he just generalized. And uh, we continued to be friends. But uh, it was, uh, I did not, the Lord did not at that point. No, no, that actually, no, that actually, and this is leading us far afield, but, uh, and probably with, with some design, I'm sure. Uh, no, it's not. It is not in the Quran. It is uh, Elijah Muhammad, back in about 1945 or something, uh, he's, he's 42, close. He's no longer alive. Uh, I think his his tradition is now carried on by Louis Farrakhan. Uh, but I don't think, and you know, there's there's a lot of there were some divisions here about those groups who want to be more Islamic and go back and and teach what the Quran taught. Uh, the black Muslims of Elijah Muhammad uh, did describe themselves as Islamic and in many ways were, but they had some unique features they added to that and I don't believe in the Quran you can find that white people are devils and that's only because there are Islamic peoples who are fairer skinned so no I don't believe so not not at least not at this stage uh, the, I think there are in fact now with with uh, Louis Farrakhan and others there may be some connections with uh, uh, Muslims in other countries, but but back in those days, this was a peculiarly American group, uh, and it and that the first break came when Malcolm X, who was sort of the the star preacher, who decided to to go back and to read the Quran, and then to go and do a pilgrimage, and he met people who were fairer skinned, and it, he found that in contradiction to what Elijah Muhammad was teaching, and so he broke away, and then. He was murdered. Now, a lot of people speculate about who did the murdering. I'll leave that to others. This what? Really? I, I mean, I don't know anything about all that, but uh, it, I mean, that's interesting stuff. That's okay. When you talk about going back to the historical Christianity, could not the Catholics say that they Could they? Of course. So and they do. Yeah. So when we say historical Christianity, I think we have to explain to you know, people who don't know anything about it, you know, where we shoot off from. I think we do it together, I guess, with the Catholic Church still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I say all that just to, to make a point that in the face of, of a challenge, when people are saying, no, I teach what Peter teaches and I teach what Paul teaches, how do you counter that? You can go to the Bible and you can both look at it and they say, no, it means this. You say, no, it means this. 
So one of the ways that the early church dealt with that kind of problem, a problem that we face today, and indeed, I think it's not, I don't think it's the, our main argument, but I don't think there's anything wrong with identifying historic Christianity and be as, as explain all of the differences that, that did emerge. But I mean, I really do believe, and I think, I think reform people of, of most, of all the denominations, of all the Protestant denominations, are probably among the most historically conscious about where we come from. Uh, and we, and you know, it's a misnomer. You often hear Protestants say, well, Catholics believe in tradition and scripture, and we don't. Well, that's not exactly true. Because we believe in tradition as well. Now, we don't put them on the same par with Scripture, uh, you know, or anything, but we do have a sense of tradition, a sense of, of historical belongingness. Yeah, I think understanding history is, is, a, is a good way of being contemplated. I'm very, I was impressed when I came into Christian theology. So all the history that was there, that never heard of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, well, reform people need to do one other thing, though. We go back to the 16th century. And I would want to press us to go back further uh, because the 16th century reformers, they went back to Augustine. That was the, I mean, that he was in many ways the spark that ignited uh, that, that, that very difficult time when, when Protestants broke away. So I, I like to always go back beyond the 16th century in terms of identifying historic Christianity. Anyway, but I do think that uh, that is still a useful kind of thing. Let me ask you another question. Say we've got this problem and your arguments about identifying historic Christianity don't seem to be working. What is something else you can do besides shooting these people that you don't agree with? Well, I mean, everybody, everybody's, let's, let's, everybody's looking at the Bible and saying it says this. No, no, it says this. Expose them saying, you know, you're not in, in, in yeah. The, you know, one of the problems is that you can just about some well, people can find uh, persons, maybe obscure persons, uh, and trace some sort of line, perhaps. But I, yeah, that's that's possible, Brian. Yeah, well, they've been doing this. They've been trying to do that now for a while. These these early theologians. That's one of their main apologetic techniques is to show the internal cons- inconsistency of, of, their, of the, the Gnostic system or whatever. How about trying to build a defense for a good uh, Yeah, I mean, you're, you're still talking uh, theoretically here uh, how to interpret the scriptures. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but that's, that's a good point. Warren? Well, yeah, that's 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 related to what I was going to say. One thing that did happen, just to fill out this idea, I always find it very fascinating, because what happened in the early medieval church is because of things like this, different people claiming to interpret the Bible, is they pulled the Bible away from the people. They took it within the institution itself and they protected it against those people who would abuse it. And they built up a priesthood, people who were authorized to give the official interpretation. 
that also happened. Uh, you protect the Bible from false interpretations. And that's one thing that did happen. And I, one of the things I think that Protestants need to understand is that the motive for taking the Bible out of the hands of the people was not, in the first place, malicious. It wasn't like, well, I'll just take this Bible away from you and watch you flounder so you'll become dependent upon me. The real early motive for removing the Bible from the masses and sort of putting, get, putting it in the protective hands of those who understood the right interpretation of the Scriptures was to protect, to, to protect the Scriptures against those false heretical notions. I think Protestants so often will just quickly uh, make very judgmental statements about how wretched the medieval church was for withdrawing the Scriptures. Now, I would argue that's not the best way to handle the problem personally, but I do understand uh, the motivation to protect the Scriptures from those kinds of heresies. Anyway. Absolutely. You, <laughs> that was my next point. What happens is you have the Protestants come along. What do they do? They <laughs> translate the Bible into the language of the people. And what do you have? You have, you know, when, when, when the Reformation opened the door, lots of people ran through. You have the Calvinists and the Lutherans, and then you have what are now called the Radicals. And they advocated all kinds of very odd and strange things. So the Bible then was taken from out, from without, taken outside the protection of the church. Irenaeus, he's trying to refute the claims of the Gnostics. And he argues that if the apostles had any secret gnosis to impart, Irenaeus argues that they would have certainly entrusted it to the bishops. And he focuses a lot of attention on the bishops. In fact, Irenaeus argues that the link of existing bishops, talking now late 2nd, early 3rd century, can be traced back to the apostles. He's basically opted for the, the line of argument that, hey, we can trace the, our understanding of Christianity and Christ all the way back and we can in fact identify the persons and trace it all the way back. In his book he goes on after stressing that you can identify bishops he first of all identifies his own relationship with Polycarp who had in turn been a disciple of John. So Irenaeus himself sees himself as in this direct line of apostolic teaching. He's just one person removed from the Apostle John. So he mentions that. And then he also mentions the Roman Catholic, the, the Roman Church. He specifically argues that the Roman Church had been founded by Peter and Paul and that the true Christian faith had been preached there after the Apostles by means of a succession of bishops. He specifically points to the Roman church 
and identifies the succession of bishops and traces it back to Peter in particular. Now, Irenaeus makes what has been a controversial statement. I want to read it to you. Still a great deal of debate as to what he meant. Irenaeus, in this connection now, writes, quote, It is necessary that every church, that is, the faithful everywhere, should agree with this Roman church. This church, he didn't say Roman, but that's what he meant. Agree with this church because of its preeminent authority in which the apostolic tradition has been preserved continuously. There's a great deal of debate as to what he means by this statement, pointing directly to the church at Rome. Now, traditionally, Roman Catholics have seen in this statement as a basis for the preeminence of the Roman church in terms of jurisdiction, that the Roman church has jurisdiction over the other churches. Donnie. Uh, in, in his Against Heresy, that book. I, I don't have a reference off, uh, right offhand. Sorry. Now, others, scholars, some of whom are Protestants, some of whom are not, interpret this very strong statement and they see it as an acknowledgement of the preeminence of the Roman church in terms of honor, not jurisdiction. Now, this is a, a difficult scholarly question about how you, how you approach a question like this. Uh, one of the things I would ask is, if Irenaeus had intended to talk about uh, the preeminence of the Roman church in terms of jurisdiction, he wasn't absolutely clear about that. He leaves you a little bit dangling on that question. So it's, it's seen by many, at least, that Irenaeus is keen to maintain that the same apostolic faith exists throughout the world and that in particular the ancient Roman church with its clear line of succession from the apostles, that the Roman church is a good place to find that apostolic faith. In the face of the Gnostic claims, we're Christians, we have the right interpretation. Irenaeus says, this is my interpretation and those of most Protestants, that you look at Rome as an example and they, we can trace the line all the way back from the current bishop to the apostles. And we can see that what they believe, that ought to be our standard. And if you can't, you Gnostics, if you can't identify with that, then you're outside historic Christianity. The Roman church then is the best example of the continuing validity of the apostolic faith. And then to further demonstrate his point that Rome at least can be is, is important as a good example, he then lists all of the previous bishops of Rome, specifically in his book Against Heresies. In the two examples that he gave, the one of his own lineage tracing back to the Apostle John and the example of the Roman Church, 
He is concerned primarily with the succession of pure Christian doctrine, historic Christian doctrine, and its transmission through bishops. I think what we're seeing here, even if we are, the interpretation is that I've taken is correct, namely the view that this is talking primarily about preeminence of Rome in terms of not jurisdiction but honor because of its relationship to Peter and Paul. Even so, we are seeing in the early period, late second, early century, that these many important theologians are looking towards Rome, even if it is in terms of an example. They're, the eyes are inevitably headed that way. When we get to Cyprian, they are in many ways locked on Rome. David. Well, there's some debate because the word bishop is actually used in the New Testament, but it ordinarily means I mean, presbyter. An historic example? Well, you know, the first evidence we have, I think, is around the turn of the century, from the first to the second century. I think the earliest example is Ignatius of Antioch. And now, and the thing, and the thing you can push that back, perhaps some years because he claims he's not the first bishop of Antioch. Okay. From the apostles. think one might be able to make an argument, uh, but it's, it's not a direct argument, sort of an indirect one, and that's why it's complicated. I mean, you could argue, I mean, if, if John is living in 90s AD, then, and we take Ignatius in about 110, saying he's not the first, then it looks as though you might be able to make a sort of an indirect case that there may have been a, a bishop or two around. The thing that also needs to be appreciated is that, that there seems to be you know, lots of different churches and some come to adopt the idea of a bishop sooner than others. I mean, Ignatius himself sort of illustrates that because he, he, mentions, he doesn't mention Rome as having a bishop in talking in the turn of the century. Uh, and scholars sort of speculate that perhaps that's because there wasn't one there at that point. Uh, but it is clear that there's, there's, a, there's a movement toward first centralization on a local level by the mid-second century, that's the prevailing view, the prevailing uh, development. There is a localized, a centralized authority, a bishop over a particular congregation. And toward the end of the second, early third century, you have a broader centralization that's beginning to think in terms of Rome. Absolutely, just 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 in virtue of the fact that, that there were those two martyrdoms there. I mean, this is the center of the Roman Empire as well, so that that doesn't hurt. 
it's a, it's a significant city by itself. But the fact that you have Peter and Paul uh, presumably martyred there, uh, that lends an aura to Rome. Uh, I mean, humanly speaking, one can understand what these men, what they're doing here. You understand why they're looking this way, humanly speaking. At any rate, we see early stages of the preeminence of Rome, whether it's honorific or in terms of jurisdiction, that's a debated question. In order to face the challenge of Gnosticism, they are turning to the notion of apostolic succession to validate the orthodoxy of their own teaching. And again, from a human perspective, we can understand why they would do that when, the, when the, the people they are fighting against are appealing to the same scriptures that they have. So now they're looking for something else to distinguish themselves and say, we're right and you're wrong. And they appeal to apostolic succession. Well, they were a little bit. That's right. Uh, they, because they were claiming to be the te teaching the, the secret, deeper teachings of Paul and Peter. But what I'm, what, but the succession business here, uh, there's a sense in which the Orthodox bunch are, are talking a specific line. Uh, I think the Gnostics were a little more vague in their kind of notion. But you're right. There, there's an element of that there. Well, they no, well, they claimed, uh, you know, Marcion, for example. Marcion claimed to be an advocate of, of Paul's teaching. There were others, uh, Basilides, claimed to have been uh, in line that his teacher had been the, had been a student of Peter, for example. So you have you have some element of the same idea here, but now and but, but I think that the Orthodox feel like they they can make their case a lot stronger. Uh, in terms of their apostolic succession. I mean, you've got the preeminence of Rome, this important city, important for because it's the center of a large empire, important because Peter and Paul died there. There's this aura about it. So uh, these are just ways of coping with the challenges of Gnosticism. Let's move now to this idea of the rule of faith. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Besides appealing to the scriptures and Irenaeus, the scriptures and the line of and the apostolic succession, he also refers to what he calls the regula fide, the rule of faith. And this is similar to the line of succession, but it's not in terms of persons; it's in terms of ideas. The rule of faith is that common faith of the church handed down in unbroken succession of bishops. Yes. Rule of faith is the common faith of the church as handed down in the unbroken succession of bishops. The bishop is the vehicle of the rule of faith. And for Irenaeus, the whole meaning of the gospel can be summed up in what he called this, this rule of faith. Now, the rule of faith is not uh, 
Technically, it's not a supplement to the Scriptures. It's not an independent tradition exactly. What it is really is a summary of the main points of the Scriptures. So it is linked to the Scriptures. Apostolic succession has to do with the bishops, that office. The rule of faith has to do with the summary ideas of the Scriptures. And what did the rule of faith say? Very, it's very similar to a creed. And it affirms that God is the Creator, that Christ is the Redeemer. There is some mention of the Holy Spirit, the Church, and future judgment. Christ, that God is the one Creator. And again, the emphasis on, on that God is the Creator. The Gnostics had distinguished the Creator of this world from the Supreme God. You remember that? Well, this is, a, this is to go against that sort of notion. There's only one Creator God. Christ, Holy Spirit, Church, and the future judgment. Now, the rule of faith, these basic ideas, never had a standardized wording. In the Apostles' Creed, the, the, the wording eventually becomes standardized. Here, there is no final standardization of wording, just basic ideas. It is, in effect, the apostolic interpretation of the Scriptures. So it's, it's not only a summary, but an interpretation that is passed down from bishop to bishop, from apostle to bishop. And you find Irenaeus referring specifically to this rule of faith. This is what we believe. This is our interpretation. And we can identify it with bishops that can be traced back to the apostles. Okay, God in Christ. Irenaeus stresses very strongly the unity of God. The unity of God. And again... He stresses that the Creator is the one and only God. There's no distinction between the Demiurge as the Creator of this world and the Supreme God. He stresses the unity of God. Irenaeus also includes reference to the whole Godhead in terms of creation, for example. He says the Son or the Word is the, is the hand of God that created the universe and that the Spirit or wisdom adorns the universe. So both the Holy Spirit, or, or he calls, as he calls it, wisdom, and the Son or the Word are involved in the creation of the world. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the Virtual Campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.